Well, amen. Thank you so much, Dr. Swain. I invite you to find with me in your Bibles this morning. Acts chapter 9. We'll be looking at the verses I read for our scripture reading a short while ago. Acts chapter 9. And this is the uh, President's Dilemma on Convocation Tuesdays. It often is. I have exactly 19 verses and approximately 18 minutes. And so that's, uh, that's, that's not good, but it is good all that we're celebrating today. And so how much joy it brings me to get to recognize these new faculty members and get to celebrate with you what God is doing here. Acts chapter 9 presents for us, as I read a moment ago, it presents for us one of the stories of Paul's conversion, Saul's conversion. We see his conversion story show up in other places in the New Testament as well. In fact, twice later in the book of Acts, it shows up. But perhaps most classically and most movingly here in Acts chapter 9. I thought about this chapter and these verses a lot over the past month or so. I had opportunity to preach from them in another context. And here with this convocation in mind, being drawn again and again back to these verses, why? Because they are verses that radiate the amazing grace of God. The amazing saving grace of God in the life of this man whose mission at the time of his encounter with Christ was to snuff out Christianity, to lock up members of the way, to murder followers of Jesus Christ. But something happened, something dramatically happened on this road to Damascus that not only changed this man's life, changed the world. As you know, and as you will learn here more extensively, this was the great missionary theologian of the early church, this great apostle, one born out of season as an apostle, this one the Lord set his affection on and set apart into ministry, and through him, these missionary journeys are taken where the gospel is spread throughout the Mediterranean region and beyond, where 13 New Testament letters are written, so much is accomplished so profoundly through his life for the spread of the church, for the spread of the gospel for the fulfillment of the Great Commission. We in this place, we are a gospel people. We talk about a lot, we sing a lot, we teach a lot, we do a lot. But the core of it all is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that we are born dead in our trespasses and sins, the fact that we were living in accordance to this world's system, the fact that each one of us, young and old, before coming to know Christ, our affections were not set on Christ, our desires were not set on Christ, our lives were not set on Christ, it was moving in a direction far from Christ. May have been moving more or less rapidly based upon our context and our family and, and different influences in our life, but our lives were not moving toward Christ, they were moving away from Christ. But Christ showed up in our lives in some place through a sermon preached, perhaps on a mission field, perhaps over a cup of coffee, perhaps mindful parents investing the gospel in their kids. Christ showed up in your life and everything changed. We are conversionists in this place. What do we mean by that? We mean that men and women must come to a point in time, boys and girls must come to a point in time when they encounter this Christ. When their sin becomes real to them, Repentance becomes urgent for them. Submission to Christ becomes obvious to them. Delight in Christ becomes attractive to them. And their lives are changed by Jesus. 
That's what we see taking place in Acts chapter 9. And I wonder this morning, as we're here beginning a new academic year, a new academic semester, it would be ministerial malpractice for me just to casually assume that every person within the sound of my voice have met the Savior. Indeed, to enter this institution as a student, you have to have a testimony amongst other qualifications. Teacher in our faculty, you, you have to have not only a testimony, but, but confessional commitments as we've just rehearsed. And so the probability of people on this campus being in this room, a very high percentage being true, authentic followers of Christ, yeah, that that's, that's, should be more than likely, right? But perhaps today you find yourself working at this place And you're here because it's nice people and suitable compensation, but you manage to find your way here, but in your heart of hearts, you know, I don't have something these other people have. Perhaps you're here as a student today, and you made your way through the admissions process, and you made your way through the application process, and you're here, and you know in your heart of hearts that you don't quite have, you don't have what these other people seem to have. Perhaps you're a student at Spurgeon College and you came to understanding who we are convictionally and missionally and, and spiritually, and, and you're here because you found that attractive, but, but also your motivation was to get to play on a sports team or, or, or because the tuition rate was acceptable to your parents or some other practical consideration, and you find yourself here this morning and you're around the things of Christ, but your heart of hearts, you're not so sure you have Christ. We are gospel people, as I said. Now, I want you to know this morning, the same gospel that reached Saul in such a dramatic fashion, the same gospel still is reaching people today. And regardless of how far from Christ you find yourself this morning or how near to the things of God you find yourself this morning, if you are not in Christ, there is hope through the gospel, through this Jesus who saves We said in this text, do we not? We are told in verse 1 of chapter 9 that that Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he goes to the high priest and he has a request. Saul shows up in our New Testament at the end of Acts chapter 7 where he is is a participant. He is a party to the the first martyr in the New Testament, Stephen. Saul is there, and he's a part of this, of this gang that, that, that stoned Stephen. He's a, he's a part of this process. He's a part of this mob. And, and evidently, the stoning process of Stephen in the end of chapter 7, it stirs within Saul a greater rage, a greater desire to attack Christianity. Chapter 8 tells us in verse 1 that Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. And on that day... A great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So the believers are scattered. Verse 2, some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation, grief over him. Then notice verse 3 of chapter 8, but Saul, he began ravaging the church, entering house after house dragging off men and women so he could put them in prison. That's what this man is doing. We know, again, much about Saul from other letters, his other letters he wrote, and we know he was steeped in Judaism. He was zealous. He was a keeper of the law. He was advancing in Judaism. He he was marked out as one who was respected and known and visible. And here he is in chapter 8, pursuing believers wherever they have fled. 
Some of them fled, evidently, about 150 miles to the north, to Damascus. Verse 2 tells us, Saul, in chapter 9, he goes to the high priest, he asks for letters, certification, to go to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, those who are followers of Christ, this, this early name of believers given to those who are following Christ, we see it here in chapter 19 and chapter 22 and chapter 24, this reference, these who are following the way. And Paul goes here and he's, he's pursuing them. He's after them. He wants to arrest them. He, he wants to find them. He wants to put them to death. His mission is to end this fledgling movement that would come to be known as Christianity. So the point I want you to see as we begin these verses together is Saul is not looking for Christ. Saul is looking for Christians to put to death. And Saul is about as far removed as one can be to the naked eye to the gospel of Jesus. If we were triaging evangelistic prospects in proximity to our local church, he would be at the very bottom of the list. He'd be the last person we meet with thinking he's going to be the hardest nut to crack. But here he is. He's on the road. He's making his way. But the grace of God reaches him. This morning, as we read this passage together and reflect briefly in these verses, I hope we're struck again and again and again at how lavish the grace of God is. How rich the grace of God is. And we do so, not in the abstract, thinking, yeah, the grace of God is extensive. The grace of God in the abstract can reach you in, but understanding the degree of our own sinfulness, how far from Christ we were in our heart, and the fact that that grace, that amazing grace, reached us. This is Saul. He's contending with the grace of God. Then notice what happens in verse 3. Here we begin the specific account of this great encounter that he has with the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashes around him. The floodlights come on. Boom! Light appears. We don't know if he's traveling at night or not, but, but clearly... Whether it's day or night, this light shows up and it illumines the, the surrounding and it's clearly not a natural light. It's something supernatural taking place. And so it's a showstopper. Something's happening. Verse 4, Saul, struck by this light, falls to the ground and he hears a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What do we see taking place in verse 4? We see a divine confrontation. Saul is on the road to persecute the church. A light flashes. A voice speaks. Verse 5 tells us directly this is Jesus speaking. It's Jesus' voice. It's light emanating from Jesus. Jesus confronts Saul. Now, these 19 verses, I mean, they're like a zillion different points a preacher can make. It's so rich. But I don't want to just cruise by here without stating the obvious. Sometimes the best thing you can do for a person in sin is to confront them. Love them enough to speak the gospel directly. Jesus here confronts Saul. He speaks to Saul. In particular, he says in verse 4, 
why are you persecuting me? Wait a minute. He's not persecuting Christ. He's persecuting the church. To persecute the church is to persecute Christ. Jesus loves his church. Jesus died for his church. Jesus is building his church. Jesus is protecting his church. Jesus is leading his church. Persecute the church is to persecute the Jesus. Putting it the other way around, to not serve the church, it's to not serve Jesus. To not love the church, it's to not love Jesus. To not support the church is to not support Jesus, I think we can say. Verse 5, he says, who are you? Are, are you Lord? Who, who, who are you? Lord, Curios, who are you? And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up. And enter the city, and they'll be told you what you must do. What do we see taking place here? We see Jesus has set his affection on this man whose hatred is set on him. You see? Jesus has set his love on this man whose hatred is set on Jesus. But isn't this how our master works? His affection is set on this man whom he has great plans for. He has a great purpose for his life, and we don't know why it's Saul and not the others in his travel man, traveling band. Why it's Saul and not, 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 not other people who, let's say, are, are not persecuting the church. Perhaps they're even friendly towards the church. Why not one of those folks? Why, why, why is it Saul and not someone who's already a Christian, who's already following Christ? Why not kind of, kind of, kind of promote them up to apostleship? Lord, the Lord has his affection on this man, Saul. And the Lord calls him by name. And Saul is smitten by, that, by, that, by, the, by the illumination. He's smitten by the voice. He's smitten by the moment. And something dramatic is happening. I don't know why God called me. I don't know why God called you. Looking back, there's nothing particularly compelling about an 18-year-old Jason Allen. Nothing particularly attractive about him. Nothing particularly promising about him. Unless you think I'm engaging in public self-deprecation, there was nothing particularly attractive or promising about you either before Christ. But Jesus had a plan. Jesus has a plan. This morning I asked you in this moment to reflect, why did the Lord place his calling on your life for the gospel, your life for the ministry, your life for Christian service? And we may not know why, ultimately, but we ought never get past the why. Lord, what do you have for me? What would you have me do? Why not my roommate? Why not my sibling? Why not my classmate? Why not someone else? It's the voice of Jesus calling. Scripture speaks of this voice, right, in places like John 10. The sheep know the voice of the shepherd, and they hear his voice, and they respond to it, and they follow. That's what believers do. Now, as a boy, I played sports, and you remember in those games in high school and in college, and especially in high school, and, you know, parents would come to the games, and you're out there playing, and played in kind of a private school, so not the biggest gyms out there in these Christian schools, and dad's up there, and there might be a few hundred people in the gym, 
Might even be a thousand people in the gym at a big game. And you hear all these voices, but there's something about the sound of the father yelling his voice. You hear that above all their voices. Defense. You can hear the dad's voice, though there's a cacophony of voices. Rebound. Shoot. My favorite instruction. You hear the voice of the father. It resonates. Saul hears the voice of his master, and it resonates. Jesus tells him in verse 6, you get up, you enter the city, you'll be told you what to do. And I love this because in verse 5, Saul has reflexively acknowledged, Lord, curious, this this idea of deity, he's sensing it, he's acknowledging it. Jesus tells him in verse 6 what to do. And he gets up and he begins to move in that direction. I love the apparent instantaneous nature of all of this. Saul doesn't get a teacher. He doesn't, you know, get off. He doesn't get back on his donkey and get out a T-chart and list the pros and cons of what it means to follow Christ and kind of weigh things and seek 14 wise counselors and spend 30 days deliberating and do a thorough search of the internet. No, it's just like, I've encountered the master. He's telling me what to do. I'm going. There's a beauty to that, a simplicity to that, a directness to that, a straight wayness to that. And that's what he does. Now, you may be thinking, though, well, of course Saul would because he's gaining everything through Christ. But in Saul's eyes, in that moment, he had every reason to think he's losing everything in Christ. You see? He's about to go from being one who's persecuting the church to being persecuted. From being the hunter to the hunted. From being one who's ascendant in Judaism, the established religion of his people, to being one who is despised by the same. You see, Paul would speak of his conversion in Philippians chapter 3 when he would reflect autobiographically, although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more, I will circumcise the eighth day for the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I persecuted the church. As to righteousness, which is found in the law, had it covered. I was blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, count them but rubbish, in order that I may be in Christ. I might be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but by that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God and the basis of faith, so that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. What what is happening? We're seeing a person radically converted. What does Saul do? Notice verse 6. We see immediate commitment taking place. Jesus tells him, get up, enter the city. It will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. 
They know something's happening, but they don't quite know what's happening. Saul gets up, verse 8, dusts himself off. His eyes are open. He cannot see. They lead him by the hand. They bring him to Damascus. And he's there three days and three nights. And he neither eats nor drinks. Why is Saul, why is he blinded? First of all, to see the glorified Lord in all of his splendor is a blinding experience. Uh, we see that when, for instance, when the Apostle John encounters the Lord in the island of Patmos, and he falls to the ground like a dead man. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a blinding experience. Perhaps also it's a way, in this moment, the Lord is teaching him even now a sense of, of humility and dependence. He's lost his sight, and what good will he be for the Lord if he doesn't get his back? And in this moment, he loses it. He experiences his own frailty. Perhaps it's also to, to, to cement in his heart something radical has happened. Not just spiritually, internally, but even externally, he'll look back for the rest of his life. And if, he ever's prone, if he's ever prone to doubt what happened or wonder, was this like a dream or did I miss this? Did I misinterpret what happened? He would know, no, it was so dramatic. I was blinded for three days. And then the Lord gave me my sight back. Saul is committed. He gets up, he moves, he's following orders. And this is what takes place. Notice verse 10, and we'll move quickly. Enter the scene now is this man named Ananias, clearly not the Ananias from Acts chapter 5 who, who died for not giving God his due. Verse 10, there's a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, you get up, you go the street called Straight, this major, major road that's still in Damascus, this road, and shops and vendors will be set up on both sides of that, of that street this thoroughfare. And he says to him, you go, to, go there and you inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarshish named Saul who is praying. And, Tarshish has, and Saul has seen a vision. A man named Ananias has come in and lay hands on, and, and has come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from your chief priest to bind all who call on your name. What is Ananias doing? He's being realistic is what he's doing. You say he's lacking faith, perhaps, but he's using common sense of what he's doing. He's heard about Saul. Everybody's heard about Saul. And Lord, you want me to go in and minister to him? What? To do that is to be going in with a, like, I might as well have a suicide note in my pocket. It's a death wish to go in. And it takes tremendous faith by Ananias, verse 13. It takes tremendous faith, verse 14. Ananias even knows he has these letters. This authority to come and bind up believers. But he's missed out on, in this moment, what God can do to the gospel of Christ. How often do we limit God's work to the gospel? Like Ananias, thinking this person is too far gone. His life is a wreck. She's a mess. The gospel is for those who are relatively clean already. But I want to remind us this morning, folks, that the gospel, again, can reach anyone. And our tendency, whether we acknowledge it or not, is to be like Ananias. 
to kind of profile in our mind a type of person who might be religious already, have religious inclinations, they're reachable. Our surveys say they're, they're open to the gospel. But others who are breathing fire against the church, who are spewing hate against the church, who are mocking the Lord Jesus Christ and think, there is no way. We ought not be surprised if we read a newsflash that Richard Dawkins came to faith in Christ, that Bill Maher came to faith in Christ, whoever, the most, the most aggressive, belligerent, anti-Christian person out there the gospel can reach. Well, notice how this text kind of comes to a conclusion here, and I'll wrap it up as well. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of my name to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. How is that for a job description? You know, does Saul know yet? How is Saul going to process? He begins to realize this isn't just like kind of God framing up a potential future ministry. No, this is what you're going to get to do, how you're going to get to suffer. Brothers and sisters, this is the amazing grace of God. It reaches Saul, who appeared unreachable. It calls Saul, who appears uncallable. But God, through Saul, through Saul, sets the world ablaze. This morning, if you're in Christ, and you're here, you're in Christ and you're here because of God's call in your life. You may not see that as clearly in this moment. You may not perceive it as clearly in this moment. But that's why you're here. Because God's kind providence has you here. And as I began this sermon, let me conclude by saying, you may be here today and you're around the things of Christ. You're around the people of Christ. You live on a campus marked by the, the, the flavor of Christ. But do you know Christ? And if you don't, today is the day to grab a prof, to grab me, grab a roommate, and say, would you pray with me? Would you visit with me? Can we talk about whether or not I am truly in the faith? Let us pray. Father, we come to you this morning. We rejoice the new semester and all that it means. We rejoice in this passage in which we learn so much. We are stirred to greater faithfulness through it because we see that we were like Saul, but by the work of your Spirit, the call of our name, you set us apart and you're using us. Will we be a gospel people and would, be, would, be, would we be never, ever shocked by the reach of your grace? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.